to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 24 of chapter 2 and read all the way through chapter 3. I want to begin uh, with a bit of a, a rabbit trail, just excuse me uh, for that if, if you will, then we'll come back to our text and the sermon proper. But uh, as we traveled over the holiday uh, weekend, went to a part of the country in which I'd never uh, visited. Uh, we flew into Albany, New York, and drove over into Massachusetts, uh, into the Great Barrington and Stockbridge area. Uh, Stockbridge is famous for being uh, the place that Norman Rockwell painted. It's also known as the place that popular musician James Taylor lives, just to give you kind of a point of, of contact there. It is a beautiful, beautiful country and very, very pristine. But I saw a glimpse of our post-Christian future. Now, if you want to see clearly where our culture is going, look to Western Europe, look to Canada, then look at our east and west coast and the metropolitan areas, and you will see post-Christian culture in full bloom. I think that I saw more churches that were either closed or had been converted into homes or businesses than I saw churches open for the preaching of the gospel. In fact, many of the churches that I saw that were open were of pervasively liberal denominations that would desire the essentials of the Christian faith, namely the uh, the, in, uh, the Trinity, uh, the virgin birth of, birth of our Lord, uh, the reality of Christ, the God-man, dying for our sins on the cross and being raised on the third day. And so you see that. And so this is the place that was the site of what we remember as the first great awakening, the place in which men such as Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield preached sermons that endure to the day to today and are studied and they're read and they they're still edifying people still bringing people to Christ because of the power of the words that they spoke and were preserved uh, for us but now 300 years later that that Christian witness has largely disappeared and so you ask the question what does a post-christian culture look like well, obviously it can look in a number of different ways. Does it look like the television program that deals with the zombies? Are there occultists everywhere? Or may, may, surely there would be gangs running wild and raping and pillaging or all types of corruption and all manner of obvious evil. No. In fact, C.S. Lewis spoke to this many years ago. What would a culture look like if the devil had completely captivated? It would look prosperous, successful. The kids would have straight teeth and make straight A's. Everybody would be fluent and comfortable and satisfied. Again, this place is pristine. It's so pristine, we went out to buy some drinking water, some 16-ounce bottles of water. You cannot buy bottled drinking water because they're so concerned for the environment. 
I suspect you can't buy plastic drinking straws as well, although I don't remember, don't know. But they are so very interested in the creation, they have lost sight of the Creator and the Redeemer who lies behind everything that they see and that they enjoy. And so we see, again, where we are headed apart from repentance, renewal, revival, spiritual awakening. All of those things have a particular nuance that we need to be familiar with because we need all of them. We need a spiritual awakening. That would mean that lost people are actually getting saved. We need a time in the church of repentance and renewal and revival. And that we have largely grown deaf to the reality of the lawlessness of the world. Oh, we're, we're, we're very aware of those who are, who are trapped in alcohol or drugs or uh, sex trafficking. All those terrible, terrible things. But as we mentioned in Sunday school this morning, what about those that are suffering this passive wrath of God? He's simply allowing them to enjoy their affluence. Enjoy their possessions. Enjoy their good health and success straight to the very pit of hell. It's an interesting concept. Life is good up there in Stockbridge, Massachusetts. But is it really? Is it really with all of their affluence and all that goes on up there? It is a Christless existence. Now, interesting discussion. One person told me, and some people even applaud this, and maybe I do too. There's no more nominal or cultural Christianity in that area. If, you're, if you say you're a Christian, you're the real deal because it will cost you something. In the schoolhouse, in the marketplace, in the workplace, it will cost you to identify yourself as a believer. And as I said, what I, what I bemoan in our midst and you just walk around. I challenge you. Go out and ask. Go, go out and seek to witness to people, to present the gospel to people, and find out how many people you can find that will actually admit they are lost and bound for hell. Everybody's saved, quote unquote, around here. And so, what we need is for God to break hearts through the message of the Word and the power of the Spirit. Now, that was just an aside, okay? I just thought it was very interesting. As I watched this, I took a picture of a first congregational church. Jonathan Edwards, preacher of sins and a angry, angry God, preacher of justification by faith. And this church in the possession of someone that likely doesn't even know what the gospel is. So, all right. We began last week, or began last week, our kind of holiday series and I have increasingly had the blessing of seeing the holidays in a more extended fashion that beginning with Thanksgiving I begin to think about our need to be thankful and that ultimately the thing that we're most thankful for is the son of God who died in our place for the forgiveness of our sins so if you're a believer no matter how difficult your providence is you have reason to be thankful. But I, I, it always seemed to me Christmas came and went all too quickly. But now I 
begin to enjoy the season early, and I keep enjoying it well beyond Christmas Day. Part of it is the blessing of not being in the retail business. Uh, when I was in the retail business, I would be sitting in church today thinking, I thought I was going to raise $30,000 this weekend. I didn't get but twenty-five. I've got 175 more thousand to go before the end of the year. What am I going to do? Very high-stress time. And so, again, Christmas was just kind of a day, and then the day after you went back and had your after-Christmas sale and hoped you could finish off paying, paying off what you owed. And so, again, I'm thankful that I can think of it and enjoy it. And I think as believers, we should orient our hearts toward the reality of our coming Savior, our returning Savior, our Savior who has come. And so I want to do a series from now beyond Christmas. And it's simply Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. Now, most, of, most people that would identify themselves as believers think they're actually, that the Bible is about them. That the Bible is all about making promises for my health and wealth and prosperity and all of these types of things. And most church people misread their own Bibles. And they make the same mistake that really split the Southern Baptist Convention about 30 years ago. Most of the people that left the Southern Baptist Convention and formed the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, which is still around today, they were not true blue liberals. They probably, for the most part, wouldn't deny the deity of Christ or the atoning death. They might even say a word about the inspiration of Scripture. But here's what they typically believed. I can interpret the Bible any way I want to. That it, the Bible means what it means to me. It's not that the Bible makes an objective statement about reality, but that the inspiration is simply what it means to me, which is a tremendous fallacy. And it leads us into where we are today. This subjective evaluation and interpretation of the Word of God. And fundamentally, they miss the point. Because here's the deal. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is about Jesus Christ, the salvation He accomplished at the cross of Calvary, and the gospel which is to be preached to all men in all places at all times. Charles Spurgeon's methodology of preaching was to take every passage of the Bible, any passage that he preached, and make a beeline to the cross. That's the way the Bible is to be read. Not, well, this is what it means to me. That's second only to God told me in bad language. And then right after that is ask Jesus into your heart. So those are the three things you don't say, okay? Just so you remember. Again, we're not saying Jesus doesn't dwell in your heart through faith. We're saying just because you say Jesus come into my heart doesn't mean you are saved. It's a matter of repentance and faith. It's a matter of being born again, okay? And so I want to begin in the book of Genesis because Jesus although not mentioned by name, is there in the types, in the symbols, in the shadows, in the promises, in the predictions, and even in the portrayals of the characters we find in this first book of the Bible. So if you will, again, if you've turned in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, let's read there beginning in verse 24, and we're going to read the entirety of chapter 3. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your heel and you shall, he shall bruise your, uh, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. You shall desire, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. If you would, pray with me. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Your spirit inspired it and your providence. You saw that it would be uh, preserved for us. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit now would take and apply these things uh, to our lives. Give us understanding so that we may grow uh, in your grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've often said, along with a lot of other commentators, that the first glimpse that we get of the gospel of Jesus Christ is found in the third 
uh, chapter of Genesis in verse 15. But as I worked through the text this week, I've decided that's not exactly true. The first glimpse we get, and maybe not even the first glimpse, I could actually go back and maybe find some other glimpses, but at least a prior glimpse of the gospel than the reference to the seed of the woman is in this marriage of the first man and the first woman and their joining uh, into one flesh. That is that the man would leave his home to go seek out his wife and they would be in a, a supernatural way joined together. Which Paul explains is what? Is the picture of Christ and his church. And so right there, foundationally, why is marriage so important? There are many reasons that marriage is, so, is important. Why is it important that only man and woman be married? Because they are the ones that God has chosen to what? Portray Christ and his great love for the church. And the church, like a couple, should be producing offspring, descendants, descendants, right? Shouldn't we as a church be producing descendants, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? And so we see that, and then we see this glorious picture of life in the garden, and then we are given chapter 3. Don't we wish the Bible could have been completed at the end of chapter 2? And that we live in this paradise we remember as the Garden of Eden, absent the reality of the fall. It's a terrible thing to leave here today and go once again to a funeral home and place a beloved saint in the ground tomorrow. Why do we do that? Because of sin's entrance into the world. Because of what happens in chapter 3. Where again, Satan came and tempted. And the man willfully and knowingly embraced the rebellion of his wife and through him, we are told, sin entered our world. And they became aware of what was previously a gloriously acceptable uh, condition, that of being naked and unashamed. They were aware that they were naked and they were ashamed of that. And they did what people have been doing ever since. They sought to cover themselves, cover their shame. That's what man-made self-centered religion does. It tries to cover over for ourselves rather than relying on the covering of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see God's pronouncement of judgment upon the man and the woman. And, and, and we see a first glimpse of, of a theme that uh, uh, the Tuesday morning uh, reading group got a glimpse of this past year as we read a book called God's Salvation Through Judgment by a professor at uh, Southern Baptist Theological Cemetery by the name of James Hamilton. It's a tedious book, but it's a good book. God brings salvation through judgment. We see an oracle of judgment upon humanity. That, that it uh, summarize, it's difficult to make a living because the ground is cursed. It is, how many times have I told you? It's hard to make a living. It's hard to keep a roof over your head to keep food on the table. It's not easy. It's very difficult. And it's a challenge of a fallen world. But in the midst of the judgment oracle and the curse upon the woman, that it's going to be very difficult to bear a child, that you're going to bring forth a child in pain, and I believe it extends beyond the actual birth sequence, that a child will bring you pain all of his days. 
How many of you mothers know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's a difficult thing to rear a child, but yet they are blessings. But through this judgment, through the childbearing of a woman, there's one identified as the seed of the woman, which is not the normal way to, to identify a descendant, particularly in the ancient world. He would be the seed of the man. But what do we know, looking back, because we know our New Testament, that this is referring to one who is known to us as Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. He is not the product of human sexual activity. He is a product of divine intervention in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so he's exclusively the seed of the woman. And what shall he do? He shall be bruised. At the cross of Calvary, that seed was bruised. But in that death, burial, and resurrection, what did he do? He crushed, he dealt the death blow, the mortal blow. You know, if you hit me in the heel, it might hurt for a while. But you hit me in the head, it might kill me. And so, again, Satan has been crushed by the seed of the woman. And Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy that, that the women shall be saved through childbearing. And that's a very obscure type thing. I'm not sure exactly what he means, but at least it reminds me that in the curse of pain is the reality of hope that though sin and death entered through a man, so shall forgiveness and life come through what? A man whose name is Jesus Christ. And so, as I told you, we see that first uh, glimpse. And then also, as, as chapter 3 ends, we see that God made a covering for the man and the woman. An animal had to sacrifice, had to be sacrificed. An animal's blood had to be shed. Someone's blood had to be shed so the nakedness that they were ashamed of could be covered. A picture of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not covered in clothing of our own works, of the fig leaves that referred to in chapter 3. We are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're covered in His garments or by His garments. And therefore, we are what? We are complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, right here in the, the very first pages of the Word of God, we begin to see in a, in, a, in a promise what is to come. Namely, a seed that shall deliver us from the power of Satan. Now, the first readers of this didn't understand it. They understood it a little. Uh, Eve didn't fully understand because I think in, when chapter 4 opens, she's thinking she's had that seed. God has given me a man to replace the murdered Abel. But he's not the one. He's not the one. So they understood something about someone that's going to bless the world is going to be born in a unique fashion. They didn't understand at this point virgin birth or virgin incarnation, if you want to be a little more technical about it. But there we see the first glimpse of our Lord Jesus. Let's look at a second episode in the book of Genesis. And as you turn your pages, it's kind of interesting. 
Genesis chapter 6 deals with Noah and the flood. The ark, according to the New Testament, is a picture of the church. What did Noah do? He preached the gospel. He warned of a flood to come. Again, foreshadowing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. After the flood, you see kind of a, a paradoxical foreshadowing of the work of the gospel in the Tower of Babel. What happened at Babel? The nations were scattered so that one nation, one family could be singled out to be the recipients of the blessings of God. But the nation scattered is a mirror image of the work of the gospel in what? Gathering the nations in. So it's a reversal, so to speak, a reverse foreshadowing of the gospel. In Babel, nations dispersed. In gospel, what? Nations gathered. They're gathered before the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, Genesis 12. We are told that the, the people descended from uh, Noah, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. All the people of the world trace their origins back to these three, and we see them disperse. And, and if you were a good at linguistics and ancient geography, which I'm not, you can actually trace where all the people groups all over the world, which of the particular descendants of Noah, where they came from. And so it is from Shem, we get the Semitic races, and it's out of his line that we find one of interest, uh, a man named Nahor and his son Terah, because Terah is going to have a son whose name is Abram. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad somebody was awake. Has a son, and his name is Abram who the book of Judges described as one who worked at, worshipped idols beyond the river in the area that we would identify as Babylon or the Chaldeans. And so there was really nothing to distinguish Abraham but God. But God called to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham was a great man. He was an influential, influ, influential man. He knew uh, the great blessings of God and, and prosperity and progeny. But ultimately, how is this fulfilled? How are all nations of the world blessed? by a descendant named Jesus Christ. That's how all the nations are, are blessed uh, in Abraham. And, and it's very clear. Look there at verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. Those who bless Jesus Christ are blessed. Right? Those who bless Jesus Christ are blessed. And those who dishonor Jesus Christ, what? I will curse. That's the truth of the reality of God and His work in the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see this man, Abraham, who is older, even at his, his call from Ur of the Chaldeans. 
Uh, God promises him all these descendants. We know the, the story that they remain childless for many, many years. And he's beginning to wonder if God's going to carry out uh, his promise. And look there in chapter 15. God reassures Abram that you're going to have a child, okay? You're actually physically going to be able to, to uh, go into Sarah, and she is going to conceive a child. And he says in verse 5 of chapter 15, he brings Abram outside, look toward the heaven, see the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And then again, the gospel. And he believed the Lord and he accounted it to him as righteousness. How have all men who've ever been saved been saved? They believe God and it's credited to them as righteousness. That's how, that is how sinners are saved from their sins. And so, again, Abraham is going to have multiple descendants. And, and God reminds him uh, a chapter or two later that I'm going to give you a unique sign that's going to foreshadow the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to command you to take all of the males that are in your house, all that are born to you, and I'm going to tell you to circumcise them, to do a physical act of removal of the flesh from the foreskin of the male children. And Paul tells us, that that is a foreshadowing of the removal of the flesh from the heart of people who are born by the Spirit of God, those who believe the gospel. And he goes on to explain, it's really not the circumcision that is done by the hands of men that, that counts, that is ultimate. It is a circumcision of the heart done by the work of the Spirit. And so we see again that the gospel is being foreshadowed in this man, Abraham, that, that God is promising him what will ultimately be accomplished through his descendant through the proclamation of the gospel. And the New Testament refers to Abraham as the father of all who believe. So we count Abraham as our father in the faith, okay? Because he believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed the message of God. And so in chapter 17, where God reminds Abraham he's going to have this child. And uh, they have the child. His name is Isaac. Now, we looked at this a few months back, but I'm going to just refresh your memory a bit. Go to Genesis 22. In the story of Abraham, we find this episode that once again foreshadows and portrays the reality of the gospel. Okay? God sends Abraham on an errand. And he tells him what you're going to do. You're going to go to Mount Moriah, which is where Jerusalem was and is located. And he is to go to that mountain. He is to build a, uh, an altar, and he is told and instructed, you're going up there to kill your son. This son that you've waited for all of these many years, a son that was a blessing given to you in your old age, a fulfillment of a promise that I made to you, I'm asking you to do what? 
trust me to do what I command you to do. And so they go. And they, they prepare the altar. And Isaac quizzes his dad a little bit. And Abraham's reply is what? The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. And so as, as the final preparations are ready for this sacrifice, Abraham's hand is stayed. And he is instructed, don't harm your child. And he looks and he finds a substitute, a ram who's been caught in the brambles and the briars adjacent to where they were, had built the altar. And so the, the ram becomes a substitute that spares the son. So what do you see? You see a sacrifice of a substitute for another. Does that ring true with anybody? Do we know of a greater lamb who was a substitute for others? You see in it the picture of the Lord Jesus and his death on the cross. And so the son is spared in this point, at this point, but it foreshadows a day in what? When the son, the beloved son, the unique son, isn't spared. And he's sacrificed on the altar at Moriah, at Jerusalem, for our sins. He becomes, he's the son who's also the ram who dies in our place, in our, as our substitute. And so again, you see this picture of Jesus Christ being slain at Jerusalem, something that will happen when? 1,800 years after the events involving Abraham and Isaac. Now, I want to look at a third episode, and this one has fascinated me. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 37. God inspires Moses to devote almost a third of this great book, 14 chapters, to the life of Joseph. Now, that may seem kind of odd at, at one level. Of course, we know why he devotes the, the time he does to it. But we're introduced to this young man, and I think that his whole life is a drama that portrays the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He first appears to us in chapter 37 as the beloved son being sent out into the world. Huh. Do we know of another beloved son that was sent into the world? And as he arrives, he's hated by those he's sent to. Do we know another son who came to the world and was hated by those to whom he was sent. And then he is killed. He is murdered and buried. Is he not? Isn't that, the, isn't that the plot of the brothers? And then he's raised and sent to the far-off land of Egypt. And there kind of a whole other arc of the story begins. I can, I can vaguely remember hearing this story 
as a child. And getting to the part where he's gone to Egypt and thinking, that's the end of the story. That's the end of Joseph. You know, he's gone. But the story continues. Now, there is a, you know, I told you this morning, I was going to do a little rabbit trail, do a little aside, talk to you a little bit about our trip to New England. Genesis 38 appears to be a little bit of an aside. But the aside has a great purpose, does it not? The story in Genesis chapter 38 is the story of the brother of Joseph whose name was Judah. And just like many of the other characters that precede the Lord Jesus Christ, we're reminded Judah was a sinner in need of God's grace. He was an immoral man. And so, lest you think that God chose pristine people to include in his plan, we're told this sordid story of Judah and his immorality with his daughter-in-law. And then the story of Joseph picks up once again in chapter 38. And he goes and he lives without blemish in the world of Egypt. He lives in a world that's foreign to him and oppressive to him without a spot or blemish on his record. Who else did that? Who lived in an oppressive world, a foreign world, and never had a spot or blemish on his record? And then once again, Joseph is betrayed by the woman by whom he was employed. We know that Potiphar purchased him off of the, uh, from the slave traders and he is brought into the home and he's, he's faithful in every duty. And then the wife seeks to seduce him and he refuses and gives testimony to the goodness of his God even in the midst of a difficult providence. And he's placed in prison. And you think, well, that's the end of Joseph's story. You know, he didn't have it so bad being a house servant, so that wasn't so bad. I mean, if you've got to be a slave, maybe that's a good place to be. And he's placed in a prison. He's buried once again. So what? He may once again rise. In fact, the language is of his face being lifted up, of him being lifted up from the prison eventually. So Joseph is in the prison, and we know the story of the baker and the cupbearer and his interpretation of their dreams and his request, remember me. And time passes, months, even years, and there becomes a crisis in Pharaoh's household. He's troubled by dreams, which he does not understand the meaning of. And finally, the one he had interpreted the dreams of being restored uh, to, the, to Pharaoh's household, says, oh, wait a minute, there's a guy. There's a guy. And so they go find Joseph in the midst of that prison. And he comes and he interprets Pharaoh's dreams and he says to Pharaoh that, that you've had a couple of dreams, they mean the same thing. They're going to be seven very prosperous years. They're going to be seven very difficult years. And you need to prepare for those seven difficult years. And lo and behold, guess what? Pharaoh exalts him to the highest place in the land 
except for the office of Pharaoh himself. And so Joseph prepares a place in Egypt. Do we know anybody else that's gone ahead of us to prepare a place? Do you? You can nod your head if you're awake. You do know of one who has gone to prepare a place for us. So Joseph is preparing a place. And we find out that the famine has struck Canaan. And they are aware that there's grain in Egypt. And so the brothers, they go to purchase grain. And, and Joseph kind of puts them through the mill. He checks them out. He tests them. Make them, makes them jump through a few hoops and insists that you bring your younger brother back if you come back. You will not see me. You will not be able to buy grain without the younger brother. And so they leave and they come back. And ultimately, Joseph reveals himself as their brother. And you know what those guys said? Oh, shoot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Okay. It's just, oh, my gosh. What are we going to do? And we see a merciful response. In fact, Joseph said, am, am I in the place of God? I was sent here by God. Now, you were vile, corrupt, depraved, evil men. And you were doing what evil men do. do. You persecuted righteousness by putting me in the pit. But, God, God sent me here for the saving of many lives. So Joseph, in a very real sense, was what? A Savior who went ahead to prepare for the time that his brothers would come to him. So Joseph, again, is a type, not perfectly, but he foreshadows that through the perseverance and the difficulties of life, he ultimately overcomes and gains the victory, and he saves his people. Because eventually, all 70 of Jacob's family come to be with him in Egypt. Now, I lost my train of thought. I've got to go back. I've got to backtrack. You meant it for evil. You really did. You did what you wanted to do. Right? What does everybody do all the time, every day? What you want to do. Absolutely. If I pull my gun out, and it's actually out in the car, so I don't, I don't have it on me. But, but, but it is out in the car if I need it. Um, if I pull my gun out, stick it in your belly, and I say, give me your money, your choice will be what you want to do. You will choose, do I want to give up my money, or do I want to take this 9 millimeter in the gut? It's still, in a very real sense, what you want to do. Okay, People do what they want to do. But God is working through even the evil that we want to do. 
just as he did in the crucifixion of his son. Peter preached at Pentecost that according to God's set purpose and foreknowledge, through you wicked men, God placed his son on the cross at Calvary. Through the willing acts of the brothers, Joseph is sent to Egypt for their salvation. A picture of salvation, so to speak. It's not their spiritual salvation, but it is their physical salvation, which again pictures spiritual salvation. And so they come. And so they descend into Egypt. Jacob comes. He, and, and it's interesting. He's not worried about the grain. He's not worried about the difficulty of the trip. He says, I can die in peace if I can see the face of my beloved son. And folks, that's a picture of the gospel. That's trust in his Savior. You see the type? You see the foreshadowing? Because what? We will be satisfied in seeing the face of our Savior. That the things, the difficulties of this life, the, the, the tragedies of the journey pale in comparison with seeing the face of our Savior. Yeah. And so they go, and Joseph cares for them. He encourages them. And seemingly the final chapter of Joseph's life is his request, his request, don't leave my bones here in Egypt. I want to go to the place that God promised our forefathers. God has promised to us a greater hope and a greater future than Palestine or Canaan or the Holy Land or Jerusalem, whatever you want to call it. But in picturing our ultimate hope, Joseph expresses the desire for a temporal hope, take my bones back. And so 400 years later, when the children of Israel are liberated through the ministry of Moses, what do they do? They go get the bones of Joseph and they take them and they bury them in the land of promise. Again, what a great, great picture. And so all through Genesis, promise, prediction, portrayal, who do we see? What is the book of Genesis ultimately about? Well, it tells us a lot about creation. It tells us a lot about history. It tells us a lot about how people act. But ultimately, it's telling us about Jesus. Because from Genesis to Revelation, what's the Bible about? It ain't about you. It's about Jesus Christ. And so final thing. As, the sto- as Joseph's story concludes, we find kind of the return to a character that we were introduced to, namely Judah. This, he's not the firstborn. Doesn't seem to be particularly noteworthy. In fact, the most attention is devoted to his corruptness in chapter 38. But as Jacob prepares to die, he pronounces a blessing on each of his sons, including Joseph's two sons. And so he says to Judah these words. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Wow. 
Now, Judah, as a tribe of the nation of Israel, they weren't that, I mean, the kings came, came from it, the Davidic line, but not, they weren't ultimately really that powerful. And so Jacob, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is prophesying and promising something far greater than the Davidic reign of historical Israel. Your father's son shall bow before you. Judah is a lion's club from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. He's powerful. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Sounds a little similar to Nathan's prophecy promised to David years later that he shall have a kingdom you shall have a son and his kingdom shall endure forever and this king shall rule and his people shall obey him and it shall be a time of peace and prosperity how is that ultimately accomplished through the coming of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the greater son of Abraham, the greater son of Jacob, the greater son of Judah, the greater son of David, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who shall be praised eternally. He shall be victorious eternally. He shall rule eternally. So again, essentially the book of Genesis concludes with what? A prediction and a promise in the course of a portrayal regarding the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is my hope that 12 months out of the year, your life is all about Jesus. That as you read the Bible, you see Jesus. As you Go about your work. How do I glorify Jesus living my life in a fallen world in which I live by the sweat of my brow? I live with the kind of the, this thing, this cloud over my head that I came from dust and I'll return to dust. But that's not ultimate and that's not final. There is a greater promise. And the promises begin to be made in the book of Genesis about one who delivers us, who covers our sin and our shame. And his name is Jesus. So why not in this next month be thankful and be thoughtful about what the Son of God, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, came to accomplish. It's what we celebrate in this, what we call our Christmas season. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your truth, for your word to us. We thank you that you reveal your Son so powerfully, so beautifully, uh, through types, through shadows, uh, through so many different ways. And we thank you that you perfectly and clearly revealed him in the incarnation, in the life, and the ministry, and the death, and the burial of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, it's a truth that we can understand. And you've given it to us 
for our salvation. Lord, may we live in the hope, in the reality of that salvation. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.